This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Did you see the online video of the BC Conservation Officers who rescued that poor coyote who got his head stuck in a big jar? This is terrible. A poor coyote is probably looking at it, licking at something in a jar in, in someone's uh, recycling bin, something like that. Poor, poor coyote's head got stuck in the jar. He was rescued by BC Conservation officers, and those are busy people, especially during the summertime with uh, boating restrictions, drunk boating, all kinds of stuff they're responsible for. I'm going to talk to them on the show today, too. All right, make sure you stick around here all morning here with me as we kick it off now on BC's back-to-school plan. Now, have a listen to this here. Here is Premier John Horgan yesterday responding to some of the criticism and concerns about this back-to-school plan. Here's what he said. And I believe that uh, going into this September, we need to be more flexible than ever before. And I know that community leaders uh, in the education sector will be focused on that, making sure that they're doing everything that they can to make sure children are safe, the people that work in schools are safe. And I'm confident that as we evolve through the plan into uh, September, October, and into November, and then into the spring, it will be different when we finish than it was when we started. Yeah, he's trying to sound, okay, this will be a flexible plan. It may be amended. It may be changed because there are people raising concerns about it as we get set, we get set to send our kids back to school in September. Okay. We've heard from the government. We've heard from a lot from the teachers, the principals, the trustees. What about all the other support workers in our school system? And I'm talking about caretakers and librarians and education assistants. Uh, so many, uh, support workers in our school system, the bus drivers, the education assistants, are absolutely crucial. What do they think about this plan? Let's check in now with Paul Farrow. He is the president of the QPBC Union, represents these workers. Paul, thanks for coming on. Let's talk about the back-to-school plan. Um, we've had several days now to kind of digest the, the, the basics of this plan. Do you have any concerns? Well, look, uh, Mike, the key to this plan uh, is the local safety, safety plans that are going to be developed uh, at the local school districts. Every one of the 60 school districts is required, not, not voluntary, required to put together a safety plan that is done in full consultation with all of the staff uh, and then gets sent into provincial health for sign-off. If those safety plans are weak, are not done, are incomplete, then, uh, then schools will not open, in my opinion. Okay, now does that include consultation with the support workers I yeah, just described? Yeah, absolutely. Like the yeah. Yeah. This is where our 60 local presidents uh, who represent uh, uh, those, those workers uh, around British Columbia this, uh, uh, are key to this. Yeah. Uh, superintendents need to be setting up meetings, and they are now, to start consultation with, with support staff workers as well as teachers and other, and other, and other employees. Uh, it, we're in this together, and again, everybody needs to be effectively ensuring and feeling good about those safety plans. And, and I don't think that the, talking about when we're opening is, is, is part two of this. Those safety plans are, are number one. I'm not going to move. I'm not going to say uh, green light anything unless I know health and safety is there for, for our, our members, uh, all employees and students. 
Okay, your union represents, did I get that number right, 27,000 school support workers? Yeah, Mike. Uh, we yeah. Uh, Actually, it's about 30,000 in K-12. Wow. We also represent about 70,000 other public sector workers in British Columbia. Yeah, okay. So uh, some of these workers, I think, are, are they're obviously crucial to the system, but I think especially now during this pandemic, because when you talk about uh, school cleanliness, for example, and custodians, caretakers in schools, uh, they're going to play a critical role here in, in keeping these schools clean. And I remember the last time I talked to you, you were concerned about the lack of resources for cleaning schools. Are you satisfied now that you've had a chance to look at this plan, that, there, that that's going to be adequate to keep well, schools let me, clean? Let me say this. Uh, uh, the school system will not run without, without QPA members uh, in, in schools, full stop. Uh, I say that they are the heart of the school system, and I think uh, you, you recognize that, and I know that the, the ministry recognizes that. Uh, custodians uh, is certainly top priority of the safety plan, and, and unfortunately, over the years, in particular under the previous government, cutbacks for custodian and cleaning has happened. Uh, there was uh, an erosion from going from uh, uh, daytime custodians to, to evening shifts. I think everybody realizes the importance of, 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 of cleaning right now in a pandemic. Uh, yeah. The government has put $23 million more into this, Mike. Uh, I spoke with the ministry uh, earlier in the week. I spoke with the minister, Minister Fleming, last night about this topic. Uh, I made it crystal clear that, that we need to uh, spend every one, of, every one of those dollars, those $23 million, uh, to find uh, extra, extra, extra employees and extra supplies to make this plan work. And that has to happen in my mind. Okay, I was speaking, I know a whole bunch of education assistants, and I was speaking to one of them uh, the other day, and she told me that one of their concerns is how this plan is going to work for, for education assistants who work with special needs kids in the school system, and they do such a crucial job. Um, and they were wondering about how this cohort system is going to work, for example, if they're working with multiple kids, are they going to be going into various bubbles to help the special needs kids that need the help that they supply? Like, how is that going to work? Well, I, you know, the word cohorts is, is confusing. Uh, I think uh, I've been using the word learning groups. Uh, it is going to be different in, in sizes of schools uh, and, and across uh, uh, British Columbia, uh, whether we look at, uh, whether we look at uh, uh, smaller schools or, or secondary schools. It's going to be broken up. You know, education assistants have uh, one heck of a hard job. I, I am yeah. so proud of our education assistants. They are, they are, quite frankly, undervalued for the work that they do. There's not enough of them. Uh, they have one, one heck of a hard time. Uh, look, the, 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 how they operate with, with, uh, with, the, with, the, with the students is, is going to be based, again, on, on that safety plan, Mike. Uh, I'm not a doctor. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not a scientist. Uh, every decision that I'm making is based on provincial health. And I think uh, one of the documents, Mike, that, that if you haven't looked at, I encourage uh, everyone to read. Uh, it was a, it's a document just issued on July 29th from the BC Centre for Disease Control. It's an 18-page document solely on K-12 school settings, and it goes into, uh, covers everything. I think everybody should take a, have a cup of coffee and read that document because I think it adds a lot of clarity to the unknown coming up in the days ahead. But, you know, we're going to need to work out how education assistants work in, in the days ahead. And again, uh, it's part of the safety plans in my mind. And if it's not, if it's not good enough, I say school shouldn't start uh, potentially in a district that's a bit uh, weak in, in some of those well, areas. Oh, okay, on that point, are you confident that schools can reopen as scheduled on Tuesday, September 8th, right? 
Yeah, I, Mike, I'm, uh, I, I'm a facts-based guy. Uh, I think uh, the consultation that I've seen, that I've been part of, that other of our staff have been part of, is, is been, is been, has been very, very good. Uh, one heck of a lot of hard work is going to have to happen in the days ahead. Uh, can we do it? I think we can. But I have to fully agree with the Premier and specifically the words uh, that he used uh, and the sole word of being flexible. We have 60 different school districts. Some may, some may be ready to go more than others on, on September the 8th. Uh, we have to get it right. If it takes an extra couple of days, we should take the couple extra days. We are so reliant on one in each another. Uh, we have to be all comfortable and confident that this plan okay. you know, really is going to go ahead. And okay. spe- especially since you know, when we think about this, you know, by September, the majority of students have been away for more than five months out of the, out of the schools. Okay, here's what I'll do, Paul. I'll jump in there. I'll take a quick break. We'll come back. My guest is Paul Farrow. He is the president of QPBC. Let's talk about uh, COVID-19 scams and ripoffs right now. They seem to be on the rise. I get a call, I think, just about every day on my cell phone. How these scammers got my cell phone number, I have no idea, but it's one of those classic recorded messages that the CRA is coming to get you. Phone this number. You owe us money. Take action before the cops knock your door down. I get these messages like every day on my phone. How do they get my number? There are so many of these COVID-19 scams and ripoffs out there. Let's talk about that right now. My guest is David Screech. He is the mayor of View Royal near Victoria. Beautiful community. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. David, thanks for coming on. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much. Okay, let's talk about what happened to you. Somebody managed to somehow or another get into your CRA account, right? What right. happened? Yeah, I got an email Saturday from Revenue Canada, which was a legitimate one, telling me that my email address had been taken off the account. And that mm. triggered me to go into my account and, and have a look. And when I when I got into my account, someone had changed all my banking information and had also applied for two months of the CERB benefit on my behalf. Oh, okay. Now, what did CRA tell you? So someone successfully, did they manage to get the CERB money? No. I, okay. That was on Saturday, and of course that was the long weekend. So Tuesday morning, first thing, I got on the phone um, and it took me the better part of half a day, which, you know, when it's nothing that you've done is is really annoying. But at any rate, um, they did manage to stop the money before it went out. Oh. But what's happened for me personally now is my both my personal CRA account and my business CRA account are frozen until they decide what to do next. And I gather I'll get a phone call sort of within the next week or 10 days about what the next steps are. Okay, was the Canada Revenue Agency able to offer you any kind of explanation of how these scammers were able to access your account? Not really. You know, I mean, and it it really is worrying because I have no idea. And as I'm sure... Most people know with CRA, you're asked a series of personal questions on top of your username and your password. Yeah. Um, so it really is, it's, I, I have no idea how they got in. Canada Revenue Agency was great. They were really helpful. But what was off-putting was that they weren't surprised. It was clearly um, a very routine occurrence. And in fact, since then, I've had two people phone me in my role as a mayor, not few royal residents, but people who'd read the story, 
NBC, and they phoned me because the exact same thing had just happened to them, and they were looking for advice on, on what I did and how I dealt with it. Okay, I guess there's a perception out there that your CRA information is encrypted or it's very difficult or almost impossible to hack. So it's kind of surprising to find out that your your own CRA account has been has been compromised like that. And you said you found out about it when the, the CRA sent you an, e- an email advising you that your email address had been dropped from the account or something, right? So at least That's they right. gave, they kind of gave you a warning, I guess, in, in, effectively. Yeah, I suppose they must have a, a security set up so that that email does go out if the email yeah. address is changed. And thank heavens, hmm. because I would have never had any idea until next income tax time right. that um, that it had happened. And and you're right. I mean, it, it's one thing to have your credit card compromised or something, but something like your social insurance number, which is your identity marker for so many things within yeah. the country... It, it's really worrying to think that I have no idea who that now is in the in the hands of. Yeah, right, because when they get into your CRA account like that, I mean, what kind of personal information did they get access to? Do you know? Yeah, well, I mean, all sorts of things, right? They can look back on your tax returns. They can look wow. at your CPP contributions, um, obviously your your address, your social insurance number. It's... Um, yeah, no, it, it it's really worrying. And we own a business, and we employ about 10 people and and you know not that i think it has any direct implications for that but it it's all linked so a lot of information right. is there right speaking of david screech he is the mayor of view royal near victoria on how his uh, canada revenue agency account was uh, compromised by by scammers so what do you have to do now like after these scammers have got into your cra account and all, they've got access it would appear to a lot of sensitive information i mean you got to do you have to change all your accounts and all your, your account numbers now and passwords? What do you have to do now? Well, in terms of CRA, I guess they will give me next steps on that when they phone me. And I don't know yeah. if that'll mean a new social insurance number, but possibly. Wow, gee. But you have to phone the credit bureaus, so I've done that. Um, you phone the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre and make a report. You let all your banks know so they can flag your accounts. Um, so yeah, it's a process to be sure, just to yeah. to safeguard your your personal assets, essentially. Yeah, it's interesting comparator too that you made there about maybe people may have had experiences with their their credit card getting hacked. I remember that happened to me one time. I looked at my credit card statement. And I saw all these crazy bills and, and charges there that were not mine, and somebody somewhere had managed to hack my credit card somehow. And was able to, you know, the credit card company was able to put a freeze on it, and I didn't, I didn't lose any money. But a, a lot of people may have experienced something like that. But man, your CRA getting hacked like that—that's uh, that's kind of worrisome. But you, did you did you get the impression you said when you were talking to the CRA guy on the phone that this was kind of ho hum routine business here? Well, he told me that Serb fraud yeah. is the number one fraud in Canada at the moment. So that's pretty amazing when you think right across the country that it, it's our number one fraud. Um, and, I, and I got the impression there had been multiple incidents. And it is interesting with the CRA login because there's the secure login, but then they also have what they call the partner logins where you can log in using your bank card. Yeah. And I've never done that, but I do kind of wonder, you know, if, if someone does get a hold of, say, your bank card and possibly yeah. your PIN, is there some way 
that they can navigate their way through. I think there's certainly some questions to be asked and some answers to be made about how it could be what appears to be comparatively easy for someone to access that type of information. Well, yeah. I mean, would you like a more fulsome explanation from the CRA about how this happened? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And also, you know, as much have as you they, asked them, have you asked them for an explanation? And no, because I haven't. One? I haven't moved up the ladder yet. I, I'm okay. expecting that call back from a higher up person. And my other complaint, honestly, would be, you know, the hours and hours that I had to spend on hold. I mean, if if this is going on, surely there's a faster response or a faster way that they can serve, you know, the residents, the Canadian citizens that are in this jam, rather than just putting them in a normal queue and a normal lineup and um, making them spend half their day. I I guess the silver lining here is that you were able to kind of catch it early before they really drained any money, uh, because you didn't lose any money on this scam, right? No. No, and absolutely, it does give you a little bit of a sense of satisfaction to think that they they went to all that trouble and didn't get anything in the end. Yeah, but did they catch anybody, though? Did they catch the person who did it? Well, I don't know that yet. I kind Uh, of doubt it, but I I suspect they may give me some more information on that again when I get the call. Okay, interesting experience you've had. Uh, Thanks for coming on to talk about it. Nope, thanks for the opportunity, too. Yeah, you bet. That's David Screech. He is the mayor of View Royal near Victoria on his experience with scammers able to access his Canada Revenue Agency account. They were looking to sign up for the CERB, get CERB money through his uh, identity. Uh, They were able to catch them before that happened. But a lot of these type of COVID-19 scams and ripoffs are on the rise these days. Check out these statistics here. The the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre, between March and the end of July, there were 2,770 reports of pandemic-related fraud. 1,729 Canadian victims of COVID-19 scams and ripoffs, losing more than $5.5 million. I got a feeling that's actually underreported. As we continue talking about COVID-19 scams and ripoffs, you heard the story there of uh, BC Mayor David Screech and uh, how his personal identity was hacked through the Canada Revenue Agency. That was like a Serb scam. Uh, scammers trying to get a hold of some of CERB money. Let's check in with Carla Laird now from the Better Business Bureau. Hi, Carla. Good morning, and good morning to your listeners. It's nice to talk to you again. What do you think about that story that from the mayor of uh, View Royal there and the CRA? Is that a common thing, that people get their CRA account uh, compromised? It's definitely not something that's unusual, especially now because scammers have seen an opportunity to tap into these different benefits and to um, use identity theft methods to take advantage of the situation. We're actually seeing more cases of these increasing, especially in the last three months. Yeah, so this is on the rise during COVID-19, right? Yes, definitely. I mean, yeah. looking at the just what has been happening since March, we've seen an increase in identity theft. We're seeing... Um, an, an increase in scams linked to CERB. We're seeing an increase in scams um, surrounding government impersonations. And all of these are really just opportunities that have popped up because of COVID-19 and the scammers are taking advantage of the perfect storm. Yeah, it really does seem to be on the rise for sure. Let's take a few phone calls on it. 604-280-9898 is the number. Star 9898 on your cell. Hi, Florence on the open line. Hi. 
Hi, Mike. Hi there. Um, the reason I was calling, I'm not sure if you've heard of this scam or not, but okay. about three months ago, my husband got a phone call saying, you have just won $200,000 and he hung up. And they phoned back and said, this is not a joke. You really have been chosen um, by, I won't tell you, it's a, it's a well-known uh, a company that does this sort of promotion in real life. And okay. they said, we've, to prove it to you, we put $10,000 in your bank account, go to the bank and check it out. So, and they said, and once you see it there, we want you to take the money out. We will send a delivery person to your house to pick up the money and give you a check for the balance because the 10000 will cover the expenses. So we went to the bank and the bank uh, manager, because we talked to her directly and said, is there 10000 in our bank account? And she said, yes, there is. Obviously, it must be truthful. And I said, Fine, thank God, I said to her, please trace it and tell me where the money came from. She went, oh, my God, someone's got into your bank account, transferred it out of your uh, line of credit, oh. your, uh, and moved it into your account. So naturally, most people would just go to the bank machine, check and see there is 10000 there, take it out, and believe what they've been told. I was so angry, and they said, well, the only way they could do this is where were you using your bank card? Well, the only reason my, where the only place my husband used it was at the actual bank. So they had to freeze everything, even my cards, our credit cards, everything. Wow, that's amazing. So there was 10,000 in there, but it was your money just tr transferred yes. from another account. <laughs> oh my They God. transferred it from our, you know, when you have wow. um, a line of credit, sure. and you can use it or you don't use it. Yeah, of well, course. Well, that's where they got the money from. And wow. I just want people out there to realize you know, this is a scam. Oh, yeah. Thank you for sharing that story, Florence. Boy, yeah, you, you smelled a rat on that one. Good for you. What do you think of that one, Carla? Have you heard of that before? Yes, I have, actually. And I do know of an instance where I had to help a couple in Richmond, an elderly couple, because they got scammed the same way. They actually received a phone call from someone claiming to be from their financial institution, telling them that their credit card was compromised because someone spent $1,000 um, in the U.S., on their card and so what they told them was that in order for you to help us we need you to buy gift cards and we'll be able mm -hmm. to use these gift cards to lure the thieves in and catch them thinking it's from their bank they followed the instructions and what happened was the thieves moved money from one account to another account to make it look like oh yes you know we are getting your money back the process is working yeah. and they ended up spending nine thousand dollars on gift cards believing oh. that they were assisting with a bank investigation. So you're absolutely right. When you do get these phone calls claiming to be from whoever, especially for what we call these sweepstakes, prize, lottery scams, yeah. you know, they tell you that you've won money. They tell you that, you know, there is evidence that it's in your account. You need to double check. So I, your caller definitely did the right thing by verifying, yeah. reaching out to their bank to get that information and realizing that it was just another scam. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. These scammers, they are so clever. Let's go to Todd on the open line. Hi, Todd. Morning, Mike. Uh, I got hit with the uh, CRA scam as well. And uh, the way I picked onto it was uh, I got an email supposedly from the CRA saying that my email uh, that I had registered with them was no longer in effect. So I went in to check on that, and it and it uh, I noticed when I went into my account that there was actually four serb applications for the previous yeah. four months, and they had changed the direct deposit information uh, on my account to a bank in uh, Quebec. And uh, unfortunately, I got this at six in the morning. I wasn't able to get hold of CRA until after nine o'clock, and the money was transferred that morning to that account. 
Otherwise, we would have been able to shut it down. But yeah, you're talking eight thousand dollars, and uh, so now my obviously my account is uh, with CRA is all compromised, and uh, we had to do the credit bureau thing and uh, the fraud center and call the police and let the police know as well. So wow. yeah, pretty, pretty okay, pretty Todd. Thank you for sharing that very similar story to what happened to the uh, the mayor that I spoke earlier to, David Screech, with his CRA account. Carla, we just have a minute left, but I, I think a lot of people would think that their Canada Revenue Agency information is encrypted or it's or it's lock solid secure, but it doesn't sound like it. Nope. You know what is very important is that sometimes when some of these breaches tend to take place because some other part of your your information has been compromised. So you may have, you know, your email address. Is it the, are you using strong passwords to secure that? Because that's how they could be getting into your more confidential accounts like the CRA account. So it's very important that you're you may creating strong passwords using a combination of between 8 to 13 characters, upper, lowercase, numbers, symbols. Avoid using your, your, family date, your family name, date of birth, things that can be easily identified and linked back to you because it does create opportunities for breaches like that. Carla, you guys do a great job there at the Better Business Bureau on this stuff. Thank you for coming on once again today. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Okay, thank you. That is Carla Laird from the Better Business Bureau there on COVID-19 scams and ripoffs. All right, welcome back. Let's talk a little BC politics now. We've assembled our BC Poly panel. McLean Kay is in the studio. He's the editor-in-chief of the Orca website. Highly recommended if you're following politics in BC. McLean, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. Also on the line is Shannon Waters. She is the legislative reporter for BC Today. Hi, Shannon. Hi, Mike. Thanks, guys, for coming in. McLean, let's start with uh, the back-to-school plan, which I think is top of mind for a lot of people, whether you're a parent, uh, maybe you work in the school system. What do you think about the rollout of this plan? Because it just seems like the government's kind of been playing defense a little bit since this plan was announced last week and kind of trying to reassure people that there will be changes to the plan. It can be modified. It's flexible. But your thoughts? It It's a bit of a stumble, isn't it? I mean, the, the day it was announced, it seemed as though uh, they were saying, this is what's happening. It's uh, full-time back to school, kindergarten through grade 12. And after the BCTF pushed back, uh, gently but publicly, they've been kind of saying, well, there's there's room. We can talk. It's not, you know, not carved in stone. What happened with that BCTF kind of pulling their support for this? What, what are your sources telling you? Because the story that I've heard and others have heard is that the teachers' union was supposed to be on board with this thing, and at the last minute, they pulled their support for it and pulled a quote from uh, Terry Mooring, the, the union president, from the press release. I've heard the exact, I, yeah. I've heard the exact same thing, and then they had a statement ready, and in fact, was sent while Minister Fleming was still talking, saying they did not support the plan. Yeah, yeah, they kind of blindsided him while he's yeah. describing it. So, where are we at now with this thing? I guess, I guess a lot of people are wondering, what about masks? Are they going to change the, the physical distancing rules? Are they going to have staggered school dates? And it's going to, is it going to be just district by district that's what they're saying district by district i mean i'm a parent myself so i'm watching this with keen interest and uh we don't know yet i guess is the short end yeah okay uh shannon waters your thoughts yeah definitely a lot of anxiety out there from parents from students themselves wondering you know what it's going to look like when they go back to school um from teachers from support staff i mean it's a big ambitious endeavor i think i think that's fair to say you know getting everybody back to school right after the labor day weekend uh announcing the plan with you know just over a month um before that actually happens and yeah most of the details are going to be worked out at the school district level at a school by school basis 
I don't see how you can avoid that given, you know, the variety of situations in BC school districts and in the individual schools within those districts. But that makes it difficult for the government to deliver a clear plan that everyone can sort of understand and get on board with at the same time. And I think the anxiety and the criticism that we're seeing right now are products of that because people don't feel like they understand how this is going to work come next month. Yeah. Do you think it's it's going to be, Shannon, do you think it's uh, largely dependent on COVID-19 numbers because we're starting to see the numbers trend up again concerningly in British Columbia? And if we suddenly have a spike a week from now or two weeks from now, especially after the recent long weekend, Maybe that changes the plan. But your thoughts? I I have to believe that that is a factor. Like you can't separate the school system here in BC from what's going on in the rest of the province and and other sectors and in communities. Now, when um, Premier Horgan uh, spoke to reporters uh, after an announcement about the new Surrey Hospital yesterday, he did mentioned that, you know, if they have to push the start date back by a few days, as the BCTF has been asking just for training at this point, then, you know, so be it if that's the way things have to go. But, yeah, I think we are going to be watching very closely the case numbers, where these different outbreaks are, you know, who's getting infected. And if we don't see our curve eventually starting to bend back down, you have to think that they are at least going to be considering pushing the start date back further, um, if not more delays. Yeah, then it was interesting to hear Horgan kind of hedge his bets on that a bit because I think at first it was like, look, we're opening the schools up, we're opening up on Tuesday, September the 8th, then it's kind of like, well, maybe not. But do you think, McLean, do you have any thoughts on, um, is there any kind of union politics or power play going on here at all, do you think? Because, you know, this is a... A, a union, the teachers union has been a pretty a, a militant union in the past. And it, it's often a case where a union, if they see a, if they see an opportunity for advantage, uh, press your advantage. And if they can use the if the union can use this as an opportunity to create smaller classes in BC and force the government to hire more teachers. Is that a factor? You think? I'm, there's always some union politics at play when it comes yeah. to education in BC. I don't know that that's the primary driving factor uh, right now. Uh, I'm sure. I mean, of course, thoughts like that are bubbling in the backs of their heads, but I, I would be reluctant to say that's the primary motivation right now. Okay, um, Shannon mentioned the announcement uh, yet this week of the uh, in Surrey with a new uh, cancer center at a Surrey hospital, and again, I, I just can't help myself thinking political strategy because, <laughs> like Surrey, is just such a crucial political battleground several swing ridings i mean the whole government can change hands in a couple of ridings in surrey do you detect any kind of pre-election kind of posturing or sort of setting the table for an election maybe maybe it doesn't come until next year but look we're delivering you a cancer center in surrey that's the way i looked at it yesterday i mean of course i mean the the new cancer center and the new hospital were necessary for surrey it is the fastest growing city in bc but as you say the next election could well and probably will be decided in places like Surrey. And so, of course, that kind of thinking is happening in, in the premier's office. Of course, they're going to start paying a lot more attention, public attention to Surrey, because uh, that I mean, we're all going to be paying close attention to Surrey in the provincial election. Shannon, what do you think of the performance of Premier John Horgan these days? He seems to be riding high in the polls. He's, he's had a couple of sort of verbal missteps in the last few 
week, couple of weeks, but I thought he did well yesterday in his news conference, especially when he went after the the idiots at at Mister the Mister Mike's restaurant in his riding. I thought that that uh, reverberated well with a lot of people who heard it. But he seems to be found his footing again, and he certainly seems to be doing well in the polls. But your thoughts? Yeah, um, the idiots coming in and being idiots quote yesterday certainly stuck out to me. And, you know, it's it's a situation I think that a lot of us have a lot of empathy for and are very disappointed when we hear about situations like that. So it is something that, you know, I think a lot of people who were listening, um, you know, probably agreed with, which is a bit of a departure from some of Horgan's more recent press conferences where he has made these sort of unforced, um, misstep type comments when being yeah. questioned by reporters on a variety of issues is kind of what struck me. We had everything from the overdose crisis to the back to school plan where he was saying, you know, parents just need to have a backup plan regardless yeah. of what we're going to try and do. And um, he does, he did seem a little more even keeled yesterday. We hadn't seen him for two weeks, I think, was the last time he had um, a media availability um, speaking to reporters. Um, and, you know, managed to stay on topic. And yeah. I, I think that bodes well for the support that he has been seeing. You mentioned sort of high polling numbers lately, likely linked to the way the province has handled the pandemic so far and people, you know, feeling overall that they've done pretty well. Yeah. And one of the things I kind of like about, about Horgan McLean for your thoughts is, is that, uh, he does not talk in kind of carefully rehearsed sound bites to a great extent. It, he sometimes will shoot from the lip and that makes him an interesting interview because sometimes you don't know if he's going to go off script. If you compare that to other politicians, sometimes very, very tough to knock them off their sort of talking points. But this is a guy who is willing to kind of say it like it is sometimes, uh, off the top of his head, it appears sometimes. And sometimes he'll make a mistake. So, you know, Shannon mentioned the uh, mentioned he, he, at one point he said there may be an, an opportunity for an election in the fall. Um, the the drug addiction is a choice. He had to apologize for that and walk it back. The comment that he made about if you're if you're driving a car with American license plates and you're and you're getting harassed and then you should ride the bus or take a bike instead. Um, you know some of these things. He does seem to make some unforced errors now and then, but you can't argue with the results in the polls. He's doing great. I mean the NDP must be thrilled. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and uh, I mean, you're, to your point, uh, after those errors, they, they canceled his next scheduled media availability six hour, hours after announcing it. Yeah. So you wouldn't have been surprised to see him more cautious uh, this week, but uh, he wasn't. I mean, not many politicians would be unafraid to call idiots, well, idiots. Yeah. And in this case, he was right. Yeah, right. Okay, what about um, one more topic, and then we'll take a break and take some phone calls, but mandatory masks on uh, the transit system. So there was an announcement yesterday from TransLink, so mandatory masks on transit in Metro Vancouver. Also BC Transit, so a mandatory mask in other communities in BC on transit mm-hmm. as well. Uh, Shannon, your thoughts on your thoughts on that? I, I wasn't surprised that that's the direction they went. Bonnie Henry endorsed it. She had mm-hmm. been, Bonnie Henry had been um, uh, hesitant to bring the hammer down with these kind of uh, enforcement orders. But it seems like, you know, when TransLink said we want mandatory masks, she was all in favor of it. Is there, is there, a, what do you think of that? Yeah, she kind of splits. You know, Dr. Henry has been very consistent in her messaging around masking to a certain degree, saying, you know, you should be wearing these when you can't stay six feet away from people. When you go to the grocery store, if you're on a bus. So she's talked about the transit issue before and that people should be wearing masks. The thing that struck me in reading, the full announcements from the transit authorities is that BC Transit is saying that they're not going to enforce the policy. It's going to be considered 
mandatory. So people are supposed to wear them. They can be asked to wear them, but it doesn't sound like they're going to be kicking people off the bus if they refuse to. And there are exceptions to the rule. Um, Children under five and anyone with a medical reason for why they can't wear a mask doesn't have to wear a mask when they're on the bus. TransLink has a similar um, stance. They are saying that transit police will be able to enforce mask wearing on transit, but initially their focus is going to be on education and awareness, you know, reminding people, telling people they're supposed to be wearing a mask. I don't know when the actual enforcement might be kicking in, but to me that sort of, um, that stance, that policy seems very Dr. Bonnie Henry, you know, educate people, give them the opportunity to make good choices um, and believe that they will do that, given the opportunity. McLean, I think Shannon's hit the nail on the head. I think that approach of Dr. Henry's is what is what has worked well up to this point. And for TransLink saying they won't enforce it, I, I think that's probably just a reflection of not wanting to ask their bus drivers to be in that situation. Well, they've, they've said the transit cops will enforce it, yeah. though, right? Yeah, the but, transit police. But not the bus drivers. Not the bus drivers, but yeah. the transit police. But the transit cops can't be everywhere. Exactly. As we continue talking BC politics with uh, my panel here, McLean Kay and Shannon Waters, I got open phone lines right now. So if you want to weigh in on the back to school plan or mandatory face mask, call me right now. You probably get through 604 280 9898 is the number. 604 280 9898 star 9898 on your cell it must be frustrating mcclay for mclean for the liberals to be in opposition and looking at the uh, the polling numbers and can't seem to lay a glove on horgan these days and they just lost one of their i think one of their better mlas tracy reddies who is i think a very steady mla for them what's what is she doing she's going over to science world yeah she's right? becoming the ceo of science world she's resigning as of uh, september 1st yeah, what do you think of that? Is that a loss for the Liberals? Oh, it's yeah. it, it's a huge loss. I, yeah. Your assessment's accurate. I think a lot of people saw her as, if they were in government, a potential finance minister. Yeah. But she had suffered um, uh, some pretty terrible bad health. Uh, she had an infection from travel in Brazil, which oh, right. uh, at one point took her heart down to, I think she said, um, 20% of capacity. And um, when she got the offer at Science World with you know less travel and, I assume, a pay raise, uh, just wasn't yeah. able to turn it down. Yeah, that's that's a tough that's a tough loss for the Liberals. There, I agree with you. I think she was she was uh, emerging as probably one of their steadier performers. And what do you think about the Liberals these days, Shannon? Well, they didn't have a very good second quarter fundraising standing, having looked at the disclosures. Um, now, all of the parties dropped off their fundraising efforts significantly when the pandemic hit. Um, events were canceled in the middle of March, and certainly by the time we got to April, which is when the second quarter starts, um, there weren't fundraising emails weren't being sent, and you know there were no virtual fundraisers or anything like that. So you would expect most of the parties to see um, fewer donor dollars coming in, but weirdly enough, it was only the Liberals who had a poor second quarter performance. Uh, both the NDP and the Greens got more money um, in the second quarter of um, this year than they did in the first, which when you're looking at an election coming up, within the next year, quite possibly, or slightly yep. after that, can't have them feeling very good, I would think. Okay, the election scheduled for the fall of 2021, McLean, but 
of course, it could always come earlier, especially in a minority parliament. And we've seen John Horgan kind of musing out loud about the potential for an earlier election call, which had a lot of people wondering what, what's going through his head or what's being talked about in the back rooms. When do you anticipate an election? Is it possible to have a snap election call? I mean, it's always possible, but yeah. uh, I'm actually on uh, team uh, election more or less as scheduled. Yeah. I think it'll be it'll be harder for the NDP to engineer essentially defeating themselves. And I also think they're aware that if they go to the polls with, you know, the reason is basically just we thought we could win. There would be a backlash during especially during a pandemic. That's always true of minority governments. Um, so I think that the election will either take place, you know, next year as scheduled in the fall or I, I could see an argument for doing it in the summer. Because it'll be safer if we don't have a vaccine by then. That that would make sense to me. I well. would think there'd be people in the NDP back room would be looking at these polling numbers and kind of salivating and saying, is there some way we can get in front of the voters here and, and somehow trigger a snap election? The risk is if, if it's perceived as some kind of political dirty trick to kind of deliberately sabotage their own government or force an election prematurely, then maybe the voters turn on you quickly. I think that's exactly the, the danger. Yeah. And I think that's probably why they haven't tried more publicly to do that. Okay, Shannon, your thoughts. We've got a minute left here. Um, I would be surprised to see us potentially go to an election, like McLean said, next summer, maybe even in the spring, but I, I just don't see it happening this fall. I think it would be foolish, and I think the NDP would likely pay a heavy price at the polls for forcing people um, to vote You know, in our first fall in a pandemic. Guys, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate both your times. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Shannon. That's Shannon Waters. She is the legislative reporter for BC Today. McLean Kay is the editor-in-chief of the Orca website. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Let's talk about the latest uh, Metro Vancouver homeless count out just uh, this week. Uh, The newest numbers are in and the number of uh, Metro, Metro Vancouver's homeless population 3,634 homeless people uh, counted uh, this in the most recent count. Uh, Let's check in now with my guest, Jeremy Hunka. He is the communications manager at the Union Gospel Mission and the important work they do there in the downtown east side. Jeremy, it's nice to talk to you again. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. When you take a look at some of these, uh, the latest homeless count numbers, uh, does that number, what does that number say to you? That number encapsulates a lot of struggle, a lot of suffering. It's really devastating to see that there's an increase, again, regionally, of the number of people who are struggling on the street. Um, It's slightly up from three years ago. However, it's particularly concerning and devastating to us because we know that this homeless count was actually compiled just before the pandemic actually struck. And since the pandemic struck, we have seen virtually all our indicators show us that homelessness and the need in general has surged. Yeah, okay, I... That's very interesting because when I saw these numbers this week, I was surprised that the numbers were not up 
more higher than what they were in the last count. But I think it's very significant if the count was done before the pandemic. You're on the front lines. You're at street level. Like, what are you seeing down at the Union Gospel Mission these days? Yeah, so since, I mean, in the four months since the pandemic has really taken hold and the shutdowns and those types of things have happened, um, we've seen a marked increase even just in the number of people that are coming to us for shelter at night. So um, the last four months, in 20, over a period of 2019, we saw you know, anywhere uh, roughly about 150 occasions where we had to turn somebody away from our shelter um, for lack of space, um, generally. This year, in 2020, after the pandemic, same time period, that number has jumped up to 620 occasions. So we're talking wow. four times the number of turnaways in these four months in 2020 versus last year. And we know it's because largely the pandemic. We're seeing it not only in our turnaways, but we're seeing it go further out into uh, the suburbs of Vancouver as well. Our mobile outreach unit is seeing more people. They're helping more people. More people are asking for help. And in, and in, in some cases, we actually have a couple anecdotal cases where people wanted to move out of uh, you know, more concentrated city areas or out of an SRO because they didn't feel comfortable because it was First of all, terrible housing, but also they couldn't socially distance. Also, people who um, were just barely hanging on, they were part of the hidden homeless. We're talking, you know, like a, a, ma, like a, 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 a young mother or, um, you know, somebody who was working and was couch surfing or trying to get by. Um, they don't no longer have that, out, that option to stay with other people because there isn't space and people need to socially distance. So there's a huge uh, kind of like collision of events that have happened with the pandemic on top of these numbers um and it's really concerning to us would you say jeremy that that sort of category of people that you just described there is particularly on the rise as a result of this pandemic like i think that there may there's a perception that when we talk about people who are homeless that there may be a perception of people who are really sort of hardcore drug users uh maybe suffering from mental illness and, and some of the terrible conditions we we see in the downtown east side but then you talk about the the hidden homeless and people who maybe have just lost their jobs as a result of uh covid19 i mean is that are those kind of people on the rise in the in the among the homeless population in our experience 100% I would say yes. Uh, we've spoken to people who had never before accessed our services or reached out for help, but because they'd lost their job due to the pandemic, they were coming to us for things as basic as a meal, especially in the yeah. period before the government supports really kicked in. And this is really, really crucial for people to know. That number, 3,634, we know that that is an undercount. There's no way we can count in one day or you know a couple-day period how many people are actually homeless because people go to great lengths to avoid stigma but to hide the fact that they're homeless or to try and blend in. Um, I've seen studies, I mean, it's, very, it's virtually impossible to estimate how many people are part of that hidden homeless, but I've yeah. seen studies that have suggested it's, that it could be double or triple what the, what the real uh, counted number is. And these are people, they have emotions, they have families, they have futures, and they, they need support, really, like yeah. there's, especially now.
Okay, speaking to Jeremy Hunka from the Union Gospel Mission, as we continue to see the homeless numbers climb during the COVID-19 pandemic, we're seeing a lot of pressures in various neighborhoods across Metro Vancouver. And I'm thinking about the um, the Strathcona Park uh, encampment. I know you're not directly involved down there at Strathcona, but... It, you know, it's almost like we see one tent city shut down, like an Oppenheimer Park and then Crab Park. And then as soon as one one homeless t- camp shuts down, it seems like another one springs up with, with the recurrent problems in the neighborhood. Do you have any thoughts on, you know, on these tent cities and, and what should be done in government response to them? Because what I'm seeing is a lot of buck passing between various levels of government. Gosh, yeah, no, it's, I mean, what this is really showing yet again is that displacement is not the answer. I mean, we had, like, it it was Oppenheimer, um, then um, the parking lot next to Crab Park, which was just largely a vacant parking lot. Um, There, like, it wasn't really um, causing a huge disruption. And then uh, there was a court injunction and, and it was moved again, and it, we know inevitably when when it's displaced, those people still exist. They don't disappear when the camp is displaced. They need a place yeah. to go, so they'll yeah. so they'll find one because they need a place to actually exist. Um, it, so it's really really unfortunate the way this is working out. I will say 100 percent that the answer um, not only to homelessness but also some of the problems that have emerged in Strathcona is to offer supportive housing to people who need it in that moment. Um, We've seen that housing people and providing wraparound supports for people who are homeless have not only alleviated great suffering and given people a chance to reclaim that future that they deserve, but they also reduce, but that also reduces the number of problems that pop up um, that have say popped up in Strathcona. So, I mean, study after study after study shows this. And study after study indicates that it's far cheaper for our society. It's less expensive to provide housing over the long term and wraparound supports than it is uh, to just deal with the ramifications of homelessness, which are emergency room visits, health concerns, um, you know, and, you know, this kind of game of whack-a-mole where, you know, a, a, a tent city pops up and then it's moved and then it's moved and it never really goes away. It's just moving around, which also makes it more difficult for the people who are there and need support to, to reclaim that future and get out of that circumstance. So we continue talking about the Metro Vancouver homeless count. The new number here for homeless people in Metro Vancouver, 3,634. But keep in mind, the survey was done before the COVID-19 pandemic hit my guest is jeremy hunka from the union gospel mission he believes the number has uh, certainly increased since uh, covid19 kicked in jeremy your thoughts on the this idea for a a navigation center to transition people from homelessness off off the streets is this going to work how, how is it going to work and do you think it's a good idea yeah, I mean, we definitely think this is a missing piece of the puzzle, and it's a positive step. It's a positive move. Um, these navigation centers um, have a couple distinctions from like a just a, like a, a, a another homeless shelter or something more conventional. And we haven't really seen them here in BC before. So first of all, it's open. Large, usually, they're open twenty four seven, so people can come and go. They have support whenever they need it. They sleep when it's safe to sleep. Um, and that really gives people a place to be to access 
further supports. People can come and, I mean, it's usually semi-permanent so people can go to the navigation centers um they can and with the goal of trying to get permanent housing through them and really really uh, importantly there's often support from outreach workers and case managers who will get to know the individual person what they're dealing with what they're up against and how to get over that um this is it's a good it's a good positive move and i will say i mean it's got to be in our previous conversation just before the break I got to say, like there, there have been positive moves, especially yeah. provincially, um, in recent years, and that's probably why the number increased uh, only slightly, and from the 2017 count, and in fact uh, reduced. It actually went down by I don't know five or six percent in Vancouver because we've been seeing the modular housing, we've been seeing those those things take root but those things take a tremendous amount of time so we're really it, i mean it's a super complicated question but the navigation centers are a good step forward yeah the navigation center announced that uh it would be 60 beds with supports and services to help people i guess transition through other services i guess that's why they call it a navigation center is help people navigate through other services so a 60 bed shelter with services um, still not set up yet. It, the plan would be to have that up and operating in Vancouver by the spring of next year, and but that was announced uh, this week. Your, uh, Jeremy, your thoughts on uh, decriminalization of drug possession? I'm interested what you think about that. This was an announcement we heard from Canada's police chiefs recently: decriminalized possession of dr- uh, small amounts of drugs. Is that the is that the right direction? Yeah, this is a, a big question, and there's been a, a large chorus of voices that, that have joined the police. I mean, Dr. Bonnie Henry has been saying this for years and years, and I'll just defer to their expertise on this. Um, what I will say, most importantly, is that I, I really, really want people to understand who are listening right now that people who are in addiction, struggling with addiction, are there for a reason, and it's usually the result of a huge amount of pain and they it's not they haven't chosen to be struggling in addiction they haven't chosen this life and they don't want that um they're powerfully powerfully addicted to something and it's usually at the result of great trauma in my in my experience so we're talking i've spoken to, to people who fell into addiction after their family was killed in a car accident they couldn't take the grief from losing their entire family in one time so um this person had turned to alcohol and drugs to, to mask that pain. Uh, we're talking uh, uh, other, other things like child abuse or other types of trauma that people can't get through right now on their own. And they, they, they find some sort of escape in that drug. And that life is somehow at the moment easier um, than turning and and getting through that pain because it's so terrible. So it, there's a lot to it. And then there's also people who, I know people who uh, were in a car accident and uh, were prescribed painkillers. And if they were had excruciating pain from their accident, and then they became addicted to the painkillers. So this it's a hugely complex thing. It's not as easy as somebody just deciding or deciding not to do drugs. This is a, a, a deep-rooted uh, situation and people need to understand when they look at somebody who's struggling in addiction that that person that doesn't that moment uh, and that struggle does not define their life 
that uh, that is just one part in a story, and that person has a future. And I've seen many people overcome and get out of that and uh, be living, you know, generally really high-quality lives afterward to the point where they are now helping others. And we just have to remember that in this conversation. Okay, that's really well said. We just got two minutes left here. Let's take a quick phone call here. Mary Jane on the open line. Hi there. Hi. Hi, go ahead. Um, I just wanted to say there's so many things to this story that just drive me crazy. I had a stroke a year ago. They, for, they were yelling at me in the hospital to take pain pills. I would not take them, and I didn't need them because after I quit taking them, I wasn't in pain. <laughs> That's one thing. Um, I can't get any support with my rehab to get me back to work. My life is spiraling. I may end up on the street someday. And I just Sorry, I'm getting so upset about this. And I've been just, like, fighting the government for the last year. They've been giving me the runaround. There's been no support. Just got a call a minute ago from the ministry. Sorry, there's nothing more we can do. Okay, Mary Jane. Um, Mary Jane, the navigation thank, thank, center just sounds like the runaround system to me. Thank you for your call. Um, I can hear the pain in your voice there. We just have, we just have one minute left here, Jeremy. But like you know, that was kind of uh, you talked about some of the, some people who get stuck in this uh, cycle uh, of someone who might uh, get accidentally uh, addicted to like opioids or whatever. Um, and that's common, but I don't know what would what would be their final thing. You'd, what would be the final message you want to get out there with the minute we got left? Um, I, I I really want people to realize that this problem of homelessness and addiction and the fentanyl crisis. I mean, this is not going away yeah. until we, as a region and as a society, say we're actually going to deal with this to a much greater extent. Um, okay. We need to throw everything we've got at this. And it, we need the, the brightest people with the best ideas, and we need everybody else to come behind them and support this because it's one of our biggest problems. And once we, um, once we tackle it, um, it'll be better for everyone, including the people I know who are on the street right now who are trying to get to that next place and okay. we'll get there if we give them support. Jeremy, thank you for the great work you guys do at the Union Gospel Mission. Thank you for coming on. Appreciate it. Thanks so much, Mike. Okay, Jeremy Hunka, Union Gospel Mission. Maybe you've seen the uh, video circulating online about the BC Conservation Officer Service and how they rescued a coyote uh, the other day who had his uh, head stuck in a glass jar. Very uh, interesting video and a great job by uh, conservation officers to uh, help this poor coyote it was uh, struggling. Uh, check out my Twitter on that, at Mike Smith News on Twitter, S-M-Y-T-H, at Mike Smith News on Twitter. I just uh, retweeted the video of the rescue operation for this poor coyote. Great to see. Great work by the Conservation Service. Let's check in now with Murray Smith. He's an inspector with the BC Conservation Service in the South Coast region. Murray, thanks a lot for coming on. Good morning, Mike. I appreciate your time. That was an interesting video there in a rescue operation for that uh, coyote. Can you tell me what happened there? How did that How did that poor coyote get his head stuck in a jar? Well, that was in Maple Ridge on Tuesday, and uh, we believe that the it was a mayonnaise jar. Yeah. We believe it was left out for uh, recycling pickup, and the coyote stuck its head in the jar looking for some sort of food reward and couldn't get it off. Yeah, and then. Uh, a member of the public called and said that we had uh, we had this situation. So uh, two officers attended, and uh, if you saw the video, they uh, they did a great job. They 
you handled the animal with compassion and care and and uh, you're able to tranquilize the animal um, sedate it and then and then take the jar off uh, very cautiously and carefully and and then wait till the coyote uh, uh, came became awake and and then off it went so it was a it was a great story for uh, for everyone especially the coyote yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, it was nice to see that video kind of go viral a bit on social media and people weighing in and saying, great job. This is nice to see. Uh, they were able to use just some good old Vaseline to kind of get the, uh, get the jar, get the jar off the, the head of this poor coyote. And yeah, that, that's a great thing for that coyote because I'm sure he, he would have been a goner otherwise for sure. Um, was it tough to, were they, they were able to like find him pretty quickly and tranquilize him and able to rescue him that way? Yeah, in this case, uh, a member of the public had uh, had a sight lines on the coyote, and it went into a ravine in its uh, uh, beside its house, and then and then the officers, when they got there, the member of the public said, uh, "Oh, there's a coyote." And so I, this coyote had it looked like it had been at least uh, you know it was its second day with uh, this jar, so it was uh, well, it could breathe, it was suffering, and it was struggling, so it was yeah. I, it couldn't get away. Yeah, no, that's really great effort there to rescue that animal. That is super nice to see. Is that something, what's what's the lesson to take away from that? If you're going to put a large jar or container like that out in your recycling, just make sure you clean it first, would you say? Well, I think I think the thing that for this, this situation is, um, I think if we do put our uh, recycling out, that we make sure it's in some sort of bag or container that... Uh, wildlife can't get into and so but it's very important that uh everything is super clean because you know in this case it was a coyote but as you know bears are uh they're they've got a great sense of smell probably 50 times greater than the humans so they get into all kinds of trouble with smells so it's really important that we uh we clean out all our recycling and and, and really not put it out to the day of recycling and uh and just keep it so wildlife can't get into it in any means yeah yeah, no, it was a great rescue operation for that particular animal. Just give me a follow on Twitter there. You'll see the amazing video of it there. Speaking to Inspector Murray Smith from the BC Conservation Service, I'm sure the summertime is is a busy time for, for you and your people there. You mentioned bears, for example. I don't know. I just seem to be seeing more reports or videos of uh, human human bears interaction in like urban settings with black bears coming around looking for food. Is this a normal summer for bear interactions or are you getting, or are you getting more calls about bears? You know, to be honest with you, this is this is one of the best years in a long time, and so okay. I, I say we've got about we've had 3,500 reports in the Lower Mainland uh, so far this year. I was just looking at last year's reports; we had 8,000 reports in the Lower Mainland. So, while we're on track, to, we could have a, a fall with lots of numbers. Our uh, it's it's pretty average, but we've had such a great balanced spring that there is lots of uh, available natural food for bears. So. It should mean that they, you know, they have lots of reason to stay out of our, our urban communities. However, they do get attracted by, uh, you know, by people and the avails that people leave out. So that's always going to be a problem. Okay, it's good to it's good to hear those numbers are down. Maybe people are getting the message about securing garbage and that kind of thing, and to uh, just reduce those attractants that might bring bears into a, an urban setting because that can often be a, a deadly. A consequence for the bear typically right if a bear has to be put down that's got to be a tough decision for a conservation officer it's a horrible situation for the officers and uh, yeah. you know i can tell from my experience i mean none of us ever got in this job to ever euthanize wildlife and it was yeah. to protect and uh you know protect the the 
source and do everything we can to ensure it's, uh, you know, it's here forever. But, you know, it, we, public safety is the number one mandate of the conservation officer service. So, you know, we have to make sure that our, our communities are safe and, and it, it's up to everybody to do their part, uh, to make sure that they don't, they, they, all their attractants in their, in their yards and their neighborhoods are, are uh, locked up. Yeah, people may have seen the headlines uh, about that uh, young girl who was bitten by a, a bear in, in, uh, the, on the North Shore. What was the, uh, the outcome of that uh, event? Do you know? Well, the, the officers, we, we had a team of 12 that went into that situation to try and, uh, and locate the bear. The concern was that the bear had followed this, this small family and, and come up to it. And, and then there had been multiple sightings. Uh, we've determined after the fact, but multiple sightings before this one event. So the bear is, is what we would consider human habituated. It's lost its fear of people and it's on the trail and um, there'd been lots of sightings. So in this case, it was such a large geographic area with dense forest. Uh, it, it was very difficult for us to find uh, the bear. And we know we have a good idea which bear it is. And we had found other bears in that area, but it, they weren't the bear that had caused the problem, so naturally we uh, uh, we focused on the bear that had been the issue. And uh, uh, so far, we haven't found the bear. But with Metro right. Van uh, Vancouver's parks, we're managing to be signed the trails really well. We recommend that when people go into these areas, to carry pepper spray with them and limit the amount of food that they take in with them. So, uh, you know, I'm hoping this bear moves on. Uh, but I suspect from my experience that the bear will come back again. So we just have to be really cautious when we get, we're into that area. Okay, speaking to Inspector Murray Smith from the BC Conservation Service, I know you guys are super busy during the summer months, especially on the water. Can you talk a little bit about uh, enforcement for boaters who might be drinking and uh, maybe drinking and boating, and also the, the regulations around getting a license to operate a, a, motor, a motor boat? in bc and do you guys do you guys do enforcement on that too we do yeah we yeah. do that in, in all over the province on big lakes small lakes rivers uh so you know when we do do an inspection on on boats you know we're looking to make sure there's life jackets on all the uh, for every every person on the boat uh we want to make sure that the operator of the boat is uh competent and has an operator competency card and that they've got uh all the safety equipment that's required on the on the vessel and uh, the vessel's licensed uh, as per uh, Transport Canada guidelines. So uh, that's all. And then in conjunction, we'll be doing angling enforcement. Uh, so we do inspections of uh, the fishing gear and the, and the uh, quotas and the, the, f the species that are in the boat. Uh, when, when we're on the water, it's, uh, we're looking for liquor. It's, uh, we're doing all the enforcement of the, that the police would do. It's just, you know, it, it's, this is what we do on the water and in the forest. Uh, what, for, what, is there, what, what is the what is the law in BC right now around the operation of a uh, let, let's say an, a, a, a a boat with an outboard motor? Because I remember in the old days when I when I was a kid, I don't think you needed a a license to operate, let's say a, a boat with like a ten horsepower motor on the on the back of it, but you do now, right? You do, yes, that's correct. And uh, and the other thing about you might fail to mention was you know alcohol and uh, and drinking. And, you know these are all areas you know we you know we would do enforcement around all that. So, you know, uh, it, it's ensure that making sure people are safe out there and, uh, and you know, when they're on the water. 
Yeah, what should people know about the licensing requirements around a boat operation? You can get you can do it online. There's an online course you can get, right? A safe boating course? Oh, it's super easy. Uh, it's available from multiple uh, locations online. And uh, uh, and so you just, you know, you sign up for the course. You you take the, the training. You, you do the exam. Uh, it does cost you a little bit of money. But, you know, and then you're certified to operate a boat, uh, you know, in Canada. It's a it's a Transport Canada uh, certified uh, a course. I follow the conservation officer, uh, the conservation service for BC on Twitter, and I, just to see the the busy the type of busy work that you guys do, especially in the summertime. And it's interesting to see some reports around poaching of animals, like illegal hunting. Is is that a big problem in British Columbia these days? Poaching. Oh, I. I it- always been a problem and and it'll probably always be a problem because of the the bountiful amount of resource that we have in british columbia you know i I don't sure there's anywhere in the world we have the rich resources we do and and consequently uh there's there's so much access to the public to the forest and and in so consequently we're going to have opportunity for people and uh poaching is just one of these uh these situations that comes with the access and the availability of a resource so uh it'll always be there and but we all we've done some great work and we'll continue to do some uh, you know to look to go after anybody that uh, breaks the laws uh you know in british columbia around wildlife thanks for coming on today thanks for having me mike you bet thank you that is murray smith he's an inspector with the bc conservation service for the south coast region and like i said follow me on twitter for the video of the rescue of that coyote a really good outcome there and it's an amazing video at mike smith news on twitter s-m-y-t-h at mike smith news on twitter